The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. The text guiding our study is a famous passage from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, beginning with the second verse. Listen now for God's word to you. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and, and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. In late September of 2001, I was sitting in the Shelton Chapel at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Austin, Texas. I was not in a good frame of mind. I was an out of sorts professor holding my head in the back row of a worship service. I was still processing, as everyone was, the 9-11 terrorist attacks. I was still contemplating the fact that perpetrators of that horror had shouted, Allah Akbar, God is great, before crashing planes that would murder thousands. And I was still wrestling with the death of a dear, dear friend, a man who once served as a seminary intern at at this church, a Presbyterian pastor who led the 20 and 30-somethings ministry here, the Reverend David Miles. In the summer of 2001, some two months before 9-11, David and his father were hit and killed by a drunk driver in Maine. I preached at David's funeral. It was a terribly difficult day. David's wife, Carol, was my colleague in Austin. David 
and Carol's two sons, Ethan and Sammy, were and are dear to Amy and me. So there I was, months after the funeral, sitting in the back of the chapel, chapel still consumed by grief. And I was also struggling to contain what might best be described as a growing sense of fury. <laughs> Up in the front of the chapel, a student praise band was singing one of their standards, our God is an awesome God. Maybe you've heard it before. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. That's the song, the whole song. Actually, this one verse is <laughs> typically repeated 10 to 12 times with growing intensity and volume. And on that day, somewhere around my fifth trip through that one verse, I walked out the back door of the chapel. I made my way about 20 yards under the hot Texas sun, leaned against a tree, and let loose a bellow of sadness and rage. Everything felt so wrong. And, and that song, beloved at youth conferences, played energetically by pastors-to-be, that infernally repetitive, chest-thumping earwig of a song sounded completely and terribly out of touch to me. It sounded obscene. Have you been there? Have you ever raised an eyebrow listening to someone casually speak about the power of God in their lives? Have, have you ever debated that person in your head? This, this makes no sense to me. Is this dude delusional or am I? Because, because honestly, this, this nasty world offers little evidence of divine power and, and might. Where is this awesome God? And when it comes to stopping, just, just plain stopping things that, that never should happen, what is this much ballyhooed power from above doing? Have you ever had a conversation like that in your head? I, I've looked into the eyes of a man at a graveside service, a service where I placed the earthly remains of eight members of his family, three generations in the ground. They died on a family trip when their plane crashed into the side of Mount Kenya. This fellow, brother and uncle to many of the deceased, looked at me and simply said, Preacher, I don't understand God. I I've read the work of atheists like the late Christopher Hitchens, that smart rogue who professed a love for the, the poetry of the King James Bible, even as he argued that belief in God is poison, pure poison coursing through the world's veins. To read Hitchens is to read someone who takes life's horrors with utter seriousness. 
Hitchens howls in rage at the suggestion that there could be somewhere up above a God reigning in power because such a figure, Hitchens contends, would have to be a cruel and lazy deity, a God who cannot be bothered with cancers or car accidents or bloody massacres. Hitchens is indignant who can believe in an awesome God in the face of so much awfulness? This question haunts our faith. It haunts every faith. <laughs> it's a question begged by the gas chambers of Auschwitz, the killing fields of Cambodia, and the lynching nooses of Jim Crow America. This question circles like a raven over belief. It hovers over Good Friday. It's inescapable when we dare to look at the crucified Jesus. Why, we ask? Why is there so much senseless, terrible suffering if there is a powerful and good God reigning above? And at the same time, why... If we're so convinced that an almighty God is nonsense, do we keep crying out for one? The answer to that last question, I think, is actually fairly easy. We may have trouble believing in such a God, but we know what we want. <laughs> the students in the chapel that day, those who sang with such fervor, were giving voice to a common and really not so wrong-headed desire. Be mighty, God. Be big enough to confront all that scares us and all that would harm us. Curiously, I think Christopher Hitchens, bless his furious soul, also yearned for a God like that. Now, to be clear, Hitchens did not believe in that sort of God or in any God, but his longing for a, for a force strong enough to extinguish the world's horrors is both unmistakable and admirable. <laughs> and really, who doesn't feel that way? <laughs> I mean, who here could not sit down in front of a, a blank sheet of paper and dash off a, a quick job description for heaven's top dog? <laughs> Wanted applicants for the position, almighty God, expectations and responsibilities must be willing to throw thunderbolts at tyrants and bullies. Takes responsibility for curing disease and easing pain, heals human brokenness, stops natural disasters and accidents before they happen, focuses on eradicating poverty, hatred and cruelty, always eager to fight the good fight, guarantees happy endings. We know how to build the perfect God, right? Or we think we know. And as such, life has convinced us that if there is a God out there, then that God is either asleep on the job or utterly incompetent. Some 300 years before Christ, the Greek playwright Aristophanes had great fun with all this in his comedy, The Frogs. If you haven't read The Frogs, you may put that on your bucket list, right? Over the course of the play, the two main characters, Dionysius, 
the god, and Xanthius, Dionysius's slave, go on an adventure. The comedic tension in this tale lies in the fact that Dionysius, the god, is a self-involved mess, while Xanthius, his slave, is a courageous problem solver. Dionysius gets the pair into scrape after scrape, and Xanthius gets them out. <laughs> after reading the frogs, I would put good money on Aristophanes walking out of the seminary chapel with me. Although, ever the comedian, Aristophanes, would be laughing. <laughs> Our God is an awesome God? Are you kidding? Look at the world. If there are powerful beings out there, they must be like Dionysius, self-serving narcissists who act in vengeful, bungling ways. How else can you explain the state of the world? Written some 300 years before the frogs, today's passage from Isaiah offers an answer. An alternative, you might say, to all, like Aristophanes, who are ready to throw up their hands and shout, the gods must be crazy. In today's text, the prophet begins, not by dodging, but, but by addressing the messed up state of things. Isaiah names his nation's woes. Our people are struggling under the thumb of, a, of an evil king. There's, there's bloodshed and war all around. We live in a land of deep darkness. But, continues the prophet, I have good news. <laughs> Heaven's response to all of this is a child, a newborn baby, who, Isaiah declares, is already being called Mighty God. Of all the lofty names that Isaiah gives to this princeling, mighty God seems the most absurdly arrogant and potentially offensive. <laughs> Who looks at a newborn and says, this vulnerable creature is mighty? <laughs> and what the heck is Isaiah doing sticking a God name tag on an infant? Isn't that straight-up blasphemy? Okay, let's deal with blasphemy first. Biblical scholars point out that in Scripture, earthly kings, starting with the first Hebrew king, Saul, were given their power by God. Kings were mighty because God has lent authority to them. And because God was thought to be the source of royal power, these leaders were expected to use that power for good. So, wait, God lends power to people? Well, this is actually the consistent testimony of the good book. And what's more, scripture points out that God loves to bestow power on society's most decidedly unpowerful folk. God lends power to a, to a shepherd boy called David. God lends power to a minor courtesan named Esther. According to Isaiah, God bestows power on a 
newborn child. And of course, we Christians run with this mind-bending promise. We assert that God's power is most clearly manifest, most fully present in the one born to a poor couple in a humble stable. What does all this mean? (laughs) What do we mean when we say that we can see God's power in the babe born in Bethlehem? Are are we picturing this child's future? (laughs) Do we imagine that a grown-up Jesus will be like the mosaic on the front cover of your bulletin, a a sort of muscled warrior? (laughs) Or are we simply saying that the best way to understand God's unconventional power is to follow Jesus, to trail along behind him, watching him, seeing what he does. In other words, when Jesus is born, when mighty God equals vulnerable child, we are seeing God's odd sort of power at work. When Jesus heals the sick and cares for the poor, we are seeing God's power at work. When Jesus sits up late at night telling stories to his friends, breaking bread, sharing cups of wine, we are seeing God's power at work. When Jesus suffers and dies on the cross, we're seeing God's power at work. And three days later, we see it again on Easter when so-called doubting Thomas touches Christ's wounds, when the disciple stares into the eyes of the impossible and blurts out, my Lord and my God. And there it is again. Blasphemy, right? I mean, you cannot, you should not go around slapping God labels on mortal flesh, but these Bible types, well, they break the rules. They spot God all over the place. A child has been born for us, says Isaiah, and he's already being called Mighty God. Like those chapel singers with their awesome God, Isaiah's words should draw us up short. What are you talking about? Can this possibly be true? Is is God's power really at work in our midst? What makes you think that God is mighty? Okay, one story, then we'll be done. One story that I've asked permission to share with you. This past September, right before Homecoming Sunday, A.C., a member of this congregation and a dear friend, was on her way to a dinner party when the car service that was carrying her was T-boned by another driver. A.C. broke her leg, her arm, her neck, her spinal cord was injured, Her heart stopped. She had to be resuscitated by the EMTs more than once. At the hospital, AC then went through multiple surgeries. She was in a coma for days. Her family gathered, we prayed, 
We watched monitors with flashing numbers, respiratory rates, and heart beats, hoping for positive signs. Doctors and nurses spoke in quiet voices and gave good care. And eventually, AC woke up. This was good news, great news. It was, though, one step in a much longer journey, a journey that continues to involve numerous procedures and therapies. And as such, the, the past three months have been a brutal roller coaster of emotions for AC and her family. They've weathered this harsh season with tenderness and grace as, as well as anybody I've ever known. And AC is improving. As of this past week, she's no longer on a ventilator. She's eating real food. She can move her fingers, squeeze a ball, and she's regained some feeling in her legs. She has a long way to go, but we're very hopeful. Three weeks ago, I was able to sit down and have dinner with AC's family. We told stories, we laughed, we prayed, we shed tears. And we talked about the question that haunts this sermon. Why didn't God take care of AC by preventing the crash? It's not a bad question. The impulses behind it are good. Those who want to prevent tragedy and heartache are earnest and wistful, righteous and loving. Ultimately, though, we spent the bulk of our evening talking about how the members of the family, AC's husband, Sean, and their three adult children, have cared for this wife and mother, standing alongside her bed, holding her hand, offering updates on her rascally cats, adjusting AC's pillows, playing her favorite music, you know, run-of-the-mill compassion stuff, <laughs> accompanying somebody that you love on a hard, hard journey, lighting candles in places of deep darkness. It's been a powerful thing for me to witness. Solidarity like this is rare. And it's mighty. It's holy. And it's got me thinking. What if, more than anything, God's power is visible in acts of human solidarity and gentleness? What if, Instead of ignoring the world's needs like Dionysius, God can be seen in the compassionate efforts of the slave Xanthius. What if true power, sacred power, the power to heal, the power to save, is far different than we imagine? What if divine power emanates not from a throne room, but a stable? What if the Holy One arrives not with thunderbolts like Zeus, but with a sudden intake of breath 
like Thomas. What if the mighty power of God can be witnessed at a dinner table where brave souls, people surrounded by the forces of chaos and the shadow of death, tell cat stories and profess fierce love for each other. I've got to admit, that would be, to quote those chapel singers, awesome. Go from this place, and as you go, carry with you the mighty power of God. And along the way, have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.